This is Calgary Today with Angela Cocott on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. What a beautiful day. And we really are headed for much warmer weather. Okay, there might be a blip at the end of the week, but I think this is a huge improvement over last week. Thanks so much for hanging out with me this afternoon. You know, Alberta's energy sector, of course, scored that victory last month with approval of the expansion of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline and the replacement of Enbridge's Line 3. But it is way too early to pop the champagne. Many a project has received the nod, only to be blocked by multiple court actions, environmental protests. Over the past decade, those protests have become even more effective in stopping energy projects. What has changed? In an extensive investigation, the Financial Post has been examining this issue. Jesse Snyder, global energy reporter for the Financial Post, joins us today. Hello, Jesse. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Would you agree that Kinder Morgan and Line 3 still have some pretty big hurdles ahead of them? I definitely would. uh, Line 3 in particular in the United States, it's still kind of an open question uh, in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, Trans Mountain, when it comes to the actual construction of the pipeline, is still up against uh, some pretty major hurdles. So as you know, these projects can sometimes be approved. They can sometimes, you know, make it through the regulatory approvals that are required uh, only to sort of reach uh, sort of physical constraints when it comes to protesters standing along the the route of the pipeline or wherever else and, uh, you know, trying to block the physical construction of the project. So they're still going to have to, you know, jump over some hurdles uh, for sure. What has happened over the last, let's say, decade that we have seen pipelines become such a target for environmental groups? Pipeline activism has been going on for quite a long time. Uh, but what's changed is that uh, pipeline activists have basically moved more into the mainstream, that is, uh, people's ideas around climate change and that sort of thing are are starting to change more broadly. And with that, uh, you know, climate activists uh, basically have a you know a seat at the table, if you will. Um, that's quite a dramatic shift from in the past. Um, you know, we tend to think that this is a pretty new movement, but it's actually been going on uh, for decades uh, at this point. Um, but uh, they've definitely managed to to, uh, you know, get the ears of politicians and of people. And it's really just come to the point now that uh, for politicians who need to make the decisions about pipelines, it's become sort of politically untenable uh, to say yes to approve pipelines. It's what they've what they've managed to do is basically link climate change and the disasters of climate change to the approval of pipelines. Um, And that's, uh, you know, a major problem, especially for oil sands producers here in Calgary. So that's really the the major shift, I would say. Jesse, you talk about climate change. And before climate change, it was global warming. And there was always a lot of debate, a lot of skepticism. And I still think there is that out there. But when you talk about climate change as it relates to pipelines, is it because suddenly there's a tangible there as opposed to maybe 10, 15 years ago, people heard about climate change, but they were wondering, well, what does it have to do with me? And how can I make a difference? Mm, well, that's exactly it. And the language has changed so much. And that's part of, you know, uh, some of the, the topics that we got into is just that when these uh, activists or anybody else tries to make, you know, some kind of argument against climate change, how this is a problem that we need to be aware of, you know, it doesn't really garner people's attention the way that a pipeline does. A pipeline is a physical 
asset. You know, it runs through people's properties. You know, it, you can sort of attach this language to it. You know, like it, it, it can divide a country. It's a, you know, in the case of Keystone XL, that was described as a sort of a funnel that's going to bring all of this heavily toxic pollutant from Alberta uh, down to Texas and Louisiana. So it really, when you know, when you're trying to sort of rally the troops, if you will, when you're trying to get people on your side and trying to get protesters to line up against these projects, you need something, you need to, as it's been explained to me, you need to show people that they can win, firstly, and you need to do that by proving that you can block these pipelines. And they managed to do that by shifting the language and, uh, you know, just having people along these routes who are worried about their land and, uh, you know, potential water bodies and all of this. I mean, that that has definitely helped the cause. And and I think that that's been the major shift. A lot of people tie this to to the 2011 uh, era when Keystone XL was was probably one of the, the major issues uh, down in the United States. And that's kind of when all of this started to pick up. That's when they started to realize that, hey, we can tie, you know, this broader issue to uh, specific projects, and, and that's going to, to work as a, as a sort of a rallying cry. Um, so I would say that that's, that's been the major shift. You talk about changing the language. There's one part of this language that has changed. We hear so much about social license to the point where I, I think people forget, why, what is that term and what has that got to do with anything? How do you define social license? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the main themes as well that we tried to get into. And, and social license is something that, uh, you know, the executives here in Calgary, uh, they, you know, they just they can't stand the term because they they tend to believe that social license is decided by the people who oppose them, meaning that, you know, they can change this threshold of when they achieve social license to whatever suits them. Uh, you know, that might mean that if they follow through on, you know, fulfilling a number of different con- conditions on a pipeline, they can still say, well, you know, uh, there wasn't uh, quite enough community engagement, say, on this pipeline. And uh, and that's how you sort of fulfill social license. You need to fulfill the claims of whoever's telling you that you need to fulfill those claims. And, and in this case, it's uh, it's the activists. But I tried to think about this a little bit in, in one of the pieces. And I think, you know, the major shift is really that the onus of evidence now is on the corporations to prove to the to stakeholders and to the general public uh, that this pipeline should be constructed. And I think that that's a major, that's a subtle, but that's quite a major fundamental shift here because it used to be in the past that a corporation would propose a project, a pipeline or whatever it is, and it would be up to the stakeholders uh, to oppose that project. And and now the onus is on the corporations and that, that creates a lot of trouble for them because they're not quite sure what are the guidelines or what are the the thresholds or the targets that they have to meet. Um, So I would say social license really comes down to that. It's that shift towards putting the onus of evidence uh, onto the companies. I also wonder if we have to re-examine our whole regulation and the process through which these projects are approved, especially if, as we saw with Energy East and the National Energy Board hearings, that we were able to see just a handful of demonstrators sidetrack that whole issue. So I'm, I'm also wondering if we have to have that bigger conversation that when it goes through all these steps, and yes, the environmentalists can protest and the corporations have to prove that their pipelines are viable, then it's going to happen regardless. But I, I feel like, as I said, we, we still don't think Trans Mountain or the Line 3 is actually going to happen. Yeah, that's definitely another problem is that, uh, you know, they've 
well, a problem or, you know, perhaps it's something that, that you should be cheering. I suppose it depends what, you know, what side of the argument you fall on. But, um, you know, one of the major shifts as well that we've seen is they've sort of managed to undermine the very regulatory system that overlooks uh, these developments. So Trudeau is trying to change that. He said that he's going to make some changes within the NEB. You saw just yesterday, I believe, they, they renamed uh, three more temporary panelists to overlook the Energy East uh, project. So if anybody wasn't already aware, um, you know, the three uh, former panelists had to step down recently, um, you know, due to allegations around that project. So that really is a major fundamental issue as well, because these are our longstanding institutions that we've long depended upon to make these decisions in the interest of Canadians. Uh, and, you know, is the moment you overturn that, then everything is, is, is in question. Uh, you know, the very, the very way that society operates is, is, is sort of in question. So they've been also very successful with that. And I, you know, I, I agree with you there, there does need to be a rethink. And, you know, to be fair, I, if you look in the past uh, at the way that the, the NEB has sometimes operated and particularly under the Harper government, you can see why some people, you know, no longer trust these institutions to the extent that they once did. You can see based on certain appointments that were made um, that, you know, people are sort of questioning whether or not uh, the NEB has everybody's interests at heart. So um, that is, I, I do agree, that is a, a much deeper issue. And that I think is, is probably the, the biggest challenge that we face. Here's another big question that people always have. The environmentalists, who are they funded by? And I know even when I say the environmentalists, that's broad because there are so many different groups even within that. And as your articles pointed out, we've got everything from the David Suzuki Foundation, Greenpeace, Pembina. But then there's always that other question about who's funding some of these organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm not as uh, I'm not as well informed on that side of things. I know that uh, you know a lot of this. The longstanding argument has been that a lot a lot of this money is actually being funneled from uh, American groups and from uh, American individuals as well, who see basically Keystone as this rallying point. I believe that that's where it started, and you know now they've started to fund these Canadian organizations in order to help it spread. I mean, when you talk to I talk to a lot of environmentalists. Uh, for these stories and uh, they always point out that this is a very global movement for them they don't see it as a a canadian issue as a a u.s issue Uh, they are trying to spread all around the planet so if you see you know this money funneled from the u.s into these uh, canadian groups i mean it does seem like a sort of a a natural way for them to expand uh, into other countries but I think that a lot of the funding comes from American organizations, but you could say the same about the oil and gas sector, who is, you know, despite growing campaign funds going towards environmentalists, I think that, you know, it still pales in comparison uh, to the deep pockets of the of the energy companies. But for the most part, yes, I do think it's, it's coming from, from the U.S. Jesse, thanks so much for starting the conversation with us. Okay, I appreciate it. Jesse Snyder, he's a global energy reporter for the Financial Post. Calgary Today with Angela Cocott, weekdays at 3 on News Talk 770 Calgary.